Welcome to the Asbury First United Methodist Church Weekly Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this message by Stephen Cady. For more information about this podcast or other ways to connect, please visit asburyfirst.org. I called to the Lord in my distress, and the Lord answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and the Lord heard my voice. In the spring of 1972, an administrator was driving up Lake Avenue on his way to visit Charlotte Junior High School when he noticed a bus that seemed to be empty save for the driver. Only he watched as it pulled into the loop of the school, stopped in front of the school, and saw dozens of black children stand up from the floor of the bus, dust themselves off, and exit the belly of that yellow beast. It was a posture they had developed over the last few weeks to protect themselves from the bricks and rocks that would be thrown at them weekly, daily, as they found their way, as they made their way past Holy Sepulchre and Riverside cemeteries on their way to school each morning. Maybe some of you know that route. To be clear, Dozens of black children in Rochester, New York, were forced to cower on the floor of their bus in order to protect themselves from parents, white parents and residents who, generation after looking down their noses at Alabama and Arkansas, suddenly found nothing wrong with tossing bricks or hanging black effigies or shouting words at the top of their lungs that I will not disgrace this pulpit by repeating, but which you can surely imagine. And the thing is, for as shameful and as sinful as it was, It worked. As that year, 1972, was the last effort, over 50 years ago, was the last effort to desegregate Rochester City Schools. And though 167 years ago, Rochester became the first district in the state of New York and one of the first in the nation to make integration the law, In many ways, we are more segregated today than we have ever been. Truth be told, Rochester is now more segregated in the city, in the county of Monroe, by poverty and race than any other set of districts in the country. We have the dubious distinction of being number one, which among many other things means that children, all of our children, black and white, find themselves stuck in the belly of their separate but equally profane beasts. I called to the Lord in my despair, and the Lord answered me. From the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice.
The story, the parable of Jonah, is about a man who didn't want to face the truth of his own city, and so he ran the other way. He turned the other way and ran as far away as he could, only, as so often happens, the truth caught up with him. That is, it swallowed him whole. It's about a man who didn't want to face the truth, but the truth faced him. And it was only then when he was found himself surrounded by the truth, when he couldn't see anything else other but the tr- than the truth, that the truth finally and mercifully set him free, that the truth vomited him out onto dry land and gave him another chance. Some of us can relate. After all, this is only the second week of our sermon series on black history in Rochester, and already it's hitting a little close to home. Especially for people who look like me, we're starting to get those old defense mechanisms out. We're starting to say those things that, you know, we often say, can't we just talk about something else? Do we have to make everything about race? There's plenty of other things going on. Can't we just talk about this later? And the answer, of course, is no. Not if we really believe what it is we preach here every Sunday. Not if we really believe in the name of Jesus Christ, that same one who told us that the truth would set us free. Not if we really believe that where there is truth, there is God, because we know that to turn away from the truth is to turn away from God. And while just like Jonah, we can run the other way, get into a ship and sail as far away as possible, Eventually, the truth will catch up with us. Eventually, it will swallow us whole. So why not stick with it and trust that maybe together the truth will set us free? I called to the Lord in my distress, and the Lord answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Rosetta Douglas was nine years old and had never attended school. The oldest of four children, when she arrived with her parents, Frederick and Anna, in Rochester in 1847, they made it a priority to get and tend to her education. And lucky for them, fortunately for them, there was a school for young women just down the street from them on Alexander Seward Seminary. And so at the start of the next term, they sent her to school. Only day by day, week by week, they began to notice that little Rosetta began to become more reserved, quiet, until one morning when Frederick was ready to walk her down to school, she refused to go. When he asked her, of course, she confessed that as the only black child in that school, she had been placed in a classroom closet every day, all day long, with only the Rare visit from an instructor who was assigned to give her a little tutelage from time to time. Do you hear Anna and Frederick Douglass had unwittingly been sending their daughter into solitary confinement, into the belly of the beast, unknowing what she was going through? And that poor little girl, that beautiful little girl, 
waited to share until she couldn't take it anymore. Just like any other parents would do, of course, they marched directly down to that school and the headmistress told them that one of the trustees had objected to having Rosetta there in the classroom. And you know that if they just waited it out, maybe for the rest of the year, they could try to get her in back into the main classroom. We've heard that before, don't we? It's often what happens with people of privilege. It's like that old Zulu proverb, the full-bellied child says to the empty-bellied child, be of good cheer. That is, it's so easy for those of us in positions of privilege and power, for those of us who are used to being in control, to simply tell those who don't have either to just wait it out. Eventually, things will get better. Eventually, we will find our way. Eventually, eventually, eventually. Only it's not our children that are being thrown in the closet. The headmistress agreed to talk with the other students, all of whom were perfectly fine having Rosetta in, her class, in their classroom. That's the thing. It's not usually the children that are the problem, as we know. She, of course, then went to speak with all the parents, and all of the parents were okay except for one, Mr. Horatio Warner, who was a Democratic lawyer and editor of the Rochester Daily Advertiser. Unfortunately, all it took was one. Rosetta was asked to leave the school. Though, as we can imagine, Frederick Douglass wasn't a man who took things lying down, and so he penned a three-page open letter to Warner that he published in his North Star that was then picked up by papers all around the country. In it, he asked the same thing we can imagine a parent of color might ask today. What makes you so much better than I? What makes your child better than mine? Sure, we differ in color, and by that account, not much. But who is to say which color is more pleasing to God? Who is to say which color is more pleasing to God? It's not a bad question. And so Frederick Douglass spent the next few years, in addition to all of his work on abolition, working with Rochesterian parents, black Rochesterians, to try and find their way into an integrated school system. Because he understood, as Nicole Hannah-Jones has recently put it, that black children will never get what white children get until they sit where white children sit. Only from the beginning, that has been a challenge for us. In 1831, the state legislature made provisions for the schooling of black children, only, as so often happens, they, they didn't provide any funding for it, beginning a cycle that we see even to this day, a great idea that they approve of, but just no funding to support it, which meant that after a year when the parents could no longer afford to rent the place they had or to hire the teacher that they had hired, black children in Rochester for a decade did not have any formal school, save Sunday school. Thank God for the church. Or rather, thank God for the black church. As there is not a single reference that I found to a white church stepping up at the time. As a reminder, we have been around for 202 years. 
1841, in January, a black man whose name we have forgot but whose impact we have not, asked for a reprieve from his taxes as he no longer wanted to pay into a system that his children couldn't participate in. He joined, in so doing, countless other black parents whose names had been lost to history, who didn't have a newspaper in which to publish open letters, but who, make no mistake, made it possible for their children to find a way. Those parents over and over again who had to, in the face of white opposition and blatant racism, find a way for their children to participate in the same way that everyone else should be able to participate always facing the same two oppositions, the same two fears that we still hear today, if not said in the same way. One is the fear of violence, particularly of sexual violence against their white girls. And the second, of course, is fear of the degradation of white education. Never mind the fact that every meaningful study of integration of the outcomes of integration show that it benefits both black and white children. Every meaningful study shows that it benefits both children. In other words, friends, the beauty of integration is not that it allows black children to have the privilege of sitting in classrooms with white children, though that is often how it's described. No, it is also because white children have the privilege of sitting beside their black counterparts, things that they miss if they're never able to be in the same room. Do you hear? It is not simply a matter of the economic and funding opportunities that are there because white children and black children are together, though that is certainly the case, and too many of our black siblings bear the brunt of the lack of funding. It is also because getting them together protects both from the soul-deadening impact of white supremacy, which in the end damns us all. The month after that man spoke asking for reprieve from his taxes, in a unanimous vote, school segregation became the law in Rochester. And while there were lots of responses, including a response by, African, by black persons in Rochester to pull together and start what they called the African School, a school that was going to be in the basement of one of the churches. Frederick Douglass and others convinced them that they should never settle for separate but equal because it would never truly be equal. And so they pushed and they agitated day by day, moment by moment, until July of 1856. With a simple vote and no fanfare at all, Segregation was taken down in Rochester, and integration became the law of the land. I cried to the Lord in my distress, and the Lord answered me. From the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Of course, what ended 167 years ago de jour continues de facto today. Ironically, even the three schools named for Frederick Douglass or one member of his family are more segregated than almost any other schools in our area. 
That is, it continues to be a challenge, but what we forget is that it didn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. After all, it wasn't always. To be clear, black children in Rochester have never had the same privileges as white children. But for many years, school segregation was not one of those challenges. That took choice. That took an effort on people who look like me's parts. We remember from last week the story of the Great Migration, which began in Rochester in earnest in 1940 and continued over the course of the next two decades. What happened, of course, in that was through racist redlining policies and restrictive covenants, black and brown persons in Rochester were forced into two different areas of the city, the third and the seventh wards. And the school district followed suit redrawing school zones to preserve that segregation, and almost immediately gross disparities, intra-district disparities, popped up. You might have one school with 40 children in each classroom packed to the brim, and just two blocks away, a predominantly or entirely white school with eight empty classrooms. On June 18, 1963, the school commission put forward a new mandate requiring a rebalancing or redrawing of school zones where there was more than 50% black students in one place, which led over the course of the next decade for the districts, for the superintendent at the time, Herman Goldberg, to put forward new proposals year after year after year, each one attempted and then pulled back in the face of white opposition, white parents, and white school board members, chief of which was Louis Cerulli. Maybe some of you know the name. He became the chief opponent to desegregation. He became the main person who stood against having any white children and black children together, which is weird because School 34 is named after him even today. And yet he was the one who was agitating for militant action against those who would dare try a new program. He even encouraged his followers to go each night by night in white sheets and stand on the lawns of those who were opposed to segregation which meant that program by program, each one was shot down, always following the same pattern. It would be tried, and then you would have white opposition from white residents and white parents, and then white student boycotts, and then eventually it would be rescinded. In fact, the only program to have survived to this day is the urban-suburban program. Some of you might know that it was founded by a, the first pro program director for the urban-suburban program and the first black principal in Rochester was a part, is a part of Asbury First, Alice Young. Only from the beginning to this day, it is an imperfect solution and it only allows a couple of students to find their way to those wealthy suburbs. which in the end is how on those, that bus ride in 1972, those children were forced to cower until eventually the program ended. The last attempt to desegregate Rochester City Schools. Though some will remember only the violence of that year, 
violence instigated by white parents and baptized by white police officers. What we sometimes forget is that so many who participated in the program deemed it a success. That for as short-lived as it was, teachers said that they saw students pick up things, learn things, find new ways of interacting with one another, and some students reporting finding lifelong friendships that they have held onto because of that moment, and yet the program ended when the school year ended early. And the next school year, 1972 to 1973, was the first time in the history of the District of Rochester that one school, school four, had not a single white student. It would not be the last time. The truth is, friends, it is no longer possible for the Rochester City School District to desegregate on its own. As the district is now 90% non-white and 47% impoverished, except that more than any other set of districts in the nation, more than any other set of districts in the nation, it borders wealthy suburban school districts that have the opposite challenge, that are almost entirely white, not entirely, but almost entirely white, and have more money than they know what to do with often. It is a challenge right next to each other, a tale of two cities, including a district that my children go to. In other words, friends, if we want this to change, and we do, then it is going to take people who look like me, people like me, and maybe some people like you who are willing to advocate for change, who are willing to call out what is happening right now and stand for something new, to say we are no longer going to take the status quo, that the districts that are don't, aren't the ones that have to be, and to tear down the racist policies which have allowed us to find our way into where we are today. Friends, the promise of the gospel is that what is is not what has to be. The promise of the gospel is that things can change, but it doesn't happen when we run away from the truth, when we turn our head away from the city to which God is calling us to look. It only comes when we turn towards it. Or we can just stay in the belly of the beast and pretend like it's normal. The choice is ours. I called to the Lord in my distress, and the Lord answered me. I cried from the belly of Sheol, and you heard my voice. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Asbury First Weekly Sermon. If you enjoyed this message, please visit asburyfirst.org and learn more about our mission to love God and neighbor, live fully, serve all, repeat.